Hello, thanks for listening to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter, here with my friend Susanna Greer. Hi, Susanna. Hey, Joe. Hey, everybody. This one was really fun. We spoke with Dr. Darren Robelair, an associate professor at Boston University. He's an engineer. He's in the Department of Biomedical Engineering, and he specializes in developing these optical technologies to study disease. So for his ACS grant, and this is actually the second time we funded him, He's developing this, like, how would you describe it? Like a wearable probe for, like, deep tissue imaging of breast tumors? How did I do? Was that good? It's not bad. It's not bad. So, Darren is, so first of all, for all our listeners, don't be scared off by the fact that Darren is an engineer and he's in biomedical engineering, he does a really beautiful job of explaining what he's doing and why he's doing it. So stay tuned. So what Darren has produced is exactly what you said, Joe. It is a probe. You can think of it kind of like a Band-Aid or an eye patch that uh, literally fits over the breast tumor on the skin and measures changes in the tumor that help the oncology team understand what's happening to that tumor. And here's the cool thing. If the tumor is responding to chemotherapy, fantastic. Let's continue. But if it's not, it would allow the oncology team to make some changes mid-stride to the dose or the drug so that the patient can have the best outcome possible. So I'll let Darren talk about the measurements um, and all the different kind of uh, challenges and exciting things that they're finding around this wearable probe. But he is uh, brilliant and insightful and, and tells a really lovely story of this technology that they're bringing into the clinic. Morning, Darren. How are you? Good, Susanna. All right. Well, let's let's level set for some of our listeners who don't think about breast cancer and chemotherapy all the time or perhaps just need a refresh on some terminology. So, can you tell us tell us about neoadjuvant chemotherapy? What is what is that? What does that mean? Sure. So, neoadjuvant chemotherapy has another name that's actually a little bit more accessible. It's called pre-surgical chemotherapy. And so the idea here is that for patients with relatively early stage breast cancers, we can give systemic, that means drugs that we give with an intravenous injection or a pill. We can give chemotherapy prior to surgery with the goal of shrinking the tumor before the surgery. All right. So why is that important? Why would you want to shrink a tumor prior to surgery? Who does that help? So the reason that's important is because if we can shrink the tumor prior to surgery, that likely means that the surgery can be less invasive. So for example, it may mean that a patient, instead of going through a mastectomy, might be able to do a simpler procedure called a lumpectomy or breast conserving therapy, where less tissue is taken at the time of surgery. And that's better for the patient. That's kind of better for everyone. So there have to be some challenges then. Um... Can you tell us about the challenges with uh, neoadjuvant or pre-surgical chemotherapies? Maybe you could also tell us, how, how do you know if you were successful? Right. So that's directly related to some of the challenges. So the idea here is that, well, we take the strategy that if we give chemotherapy, and typically that'll last between three to six months, depending on 
the medical institution, depending on the specific regimen, the specific types of drugs that the patient is getting. And the hope is that that will shrink the tumor. So here's the problem. In about 20 to 30% of patients, this works really, really well. So what does that mean? By the time we get to the point of surgery, that tumor is gone. When we do the surgery, the pathologist who ends up looking at the tissue can't find any evidence that there's any cancer left. And that's exactly what we want. The problem comes in that between 40 to 60% of the remaining patients have what we call a partial response, meaning that the tumor shrunk to some degree, but didn't completely go away. And then the last 20 to 30% of patients are who we classify as non-responders. Okay, so for about 25% of patients, we'll go through months of chemotherapy um, with the side effects that most of us are familiar with. You know, it could be your hair falling out, your digestive tract doesn't feel good, um, and others. And there's really no benefit, right? So, in fact, we might be using precious time where we could try some other intervention. So that's the main challenge with neoadjuvant chemotherapy right now. It's difficult to tell who's responding, and it's difficult to tell who's responding early. Okay, so you're looking at a lot of patients. So potentially 60 to 70% of patients don't have this fantastic response where the tumor goes away. Is that Are those numbers about right? Yeah, those numbers are about right, and that's really important if we think about folks have tracked what happens to those patients. Okay, so if you're a patient that achieves what we call a pathologic complete response. That means that your tumor has been completely eradicated by the neoadjuvant or pre-surgical chemotherapy. Your five and 10-year survival rates are higher than if you're in the category of a partial responder or a non-responder. It just means that for those patients with a partial or non-response, one type of therapy that we have just doesn't work that well, and we don't know all the reasons for that. But it's important to know that as early as possible, the idea being if we can identify those patients that aren't responding well to chemotherapy, we could try other therapeutic strategies. We could potentially try new drugs, and there's new drugs all the time, or we could have the patient go straight to surgery because they're not benefiting from the chemotherapy, or try something else. And that's a little bit closer to what we hope to accomplish in the field of oncology and personalized medicine, where we're adapting the treatment for a specific patient. All right, so this is what we're talking about is a form of precision medicine, of understanding who is responding to this frontline treatment and who is not, and those who are responding, great, but those who aren't, could we change course and have a, a different therapy, a different path that perhaps they might respond to? So the challenge is finding out, kind of separating apples from oranges, who's responding and who's not. And that fits right in to a focus of your research. I know that your lab is developing what you call a wearable probe, which I think means just that, <laughs> something a, a patient wears that is able to monitor breast tumors during this neoadjuvant or pre-surgical chemotherapy to understand some of the changes that are happening in the tumor that might be able to tell oncologists whether the tumor is responding, so shrinking during chemotherapy or not. So can you tell us what types of changes in breast tumors does your probe monitor? Sure. So my lab develops technologies that use light 
to monitor tissue. And one of our largest applications is in breast cancer, where we're using non-harmful, non-ionizing light in a wavelength range that's a little bit longer than you can see, but can penetrate deeply into tissue. And what we're specifically trying to measure is hemoglobin in the tumor. So hemoglobin carries oxygen in the blood, and tumors are well known to have quite different blood vessels, vascular supply, amounts of blood than what we could call normal healthy tissue. And that's what our probe is measuring in some very specific ways. So work my lab has done, as well as other labs across the country have done for about the last 15 to 20 years, has shown that if we use light to monitor tumors during neoadjuvant chemotherapy or pre-surgical chemotherapy, if we see changes in the tumor related to the blood level content, so if we see the blood levels reducing, along with some, some other changes related to um, other things we measure like water and fat, then that likely means that patients more likely to have a good response to treatment. And so one of the issues we've had with the technology in the past, because it's a, a relatively new technology, is we have a handheld probe that we scan across the tissue, kind of like an ultrasound probe that uses light, but it can take a long time. It can take an hour or more to measure a patient. So with our newer project, with the wearable probe, what we thought is, well, a few things actually. One, we want to make it easier on the patients. So we could have a wearable probe that goes on the breast one time, and then we can take measurements while the patient's in the chemotherapy infusion suite or in the hospital for another reason. And from that probe, we can get lots and lots of measurements just automatically about the hemoglobin content in the tumor. So this saves on the burden of the operator, saves on the burden of the patient, it's relatively quick and fast, and we can get the parameters we think we need to determine response. So it sounds like you already sure. have the technology, pardon the pun, but in hand, <laughs> that <laughs> that you could use in, I'm picturing you holding something like an eraser, like a chalkboard eraser that you that a technician could actually monitor the area where the tumor is in the breast, but that has to happen with a technician and they hold it and it sounds a little cumbersome. So it sounds like the science and the technology to understand the information is there, but what has been missing is a more patient and technician-friendly way of obtaining the data. Uh, and that's where you're moving with potentially this wearable probe. I would agree with that. So uh, as I mentioned, our lab and several others have been collecting data with early versions of the technology for, for a while now, and we're quite excited about the results. It appears that with optical techniques like ours, we are able to classify patients as either responders or non-responders at the midpoint in therapy, and then some of the work we've done shows that we can classify responders versus non-responders even earlier. For some sets of patients, maybe as early as the first week of therapy. So that got us really excited. This might be a powerful tool that provides different information than other standard of care imaging modalities like MRI or CT, which are important but measure different things. But how do we get this to, to the patient in a way that's going to make it practical for us to do clinical studies to test in larger patient populations how accurate this really is? And then, of course, how do we make it practical to fit in the clinical workflow? So this could really happen outside of an academic clinical study. 
So that's some of the reasons why we're moving towards this wearable probe. So it sounds like this, and I guess I have a few questions. Is this, well, first of all, does it hurt? Is it a, you know, a challenge for the patient to experience this? And then how quickly could you get this data back that would tell the oncologist, yeah, this, the, the tumor shrinking, or maybe not, maybe we need to continue monitoring or even change course? So the first thing I can tell you is that it doesn't hurt. So the probe looks like it's thin, it's a uh, quarter of an inch or half an inch thick, and it goes onto the breast. It's flexible. It's got a silicone housing that can flex to conform to the shape of the breast. And then we put some tape over it to hold it in place, and we put it over the tumor location. And patients often know where their tumors are, and if they don't, then um, we can find that out using ultrasound or the clinician can palpate for it. And then we use, um, as I mentioned, light, light out of, um, we produce the light using LEDs. So similar to how a, a modern flashlight works, except at slightly different wavelengths. And that light is at low intensities. So there's not a thermal effect. Um, there's no effect like there is in some other kinds of radiation where there's concerns about um, safety. So this is a very safe technology. And we, as I mentioned, measure a specific thing, hemoglobin, in the breast. And how we envision using this probe now for our next clinical study is while the patient's in the infusion suite or right before, we'll take a measurement with the patient, and then we'll ask them to come back a week later and then a few weeks later. So we want to collect a lot of data with the probe while the patient's in the hospital, trying to look at what we call longitudinal data sets just meaning data sets that we collect, as I mentioned, over time to see what the trends are in a particular patient's tumor. And we'll compare that to what happens at the time of surgery, whether this patient became a responder or a non-responder. So in this big idea that we have of maybe we can use our technology to help guide therapy and adapt it to make it more precise for a patient, we're at the stage of trying to understand, making sure that we can really tell that a patient is responding or not responding. Now, as I mentioned, some of our initial data shows us that we might be able to do this early during therapy. But these are small studies so far, tens of patients. So again, one of the reasons we're going after the wearable probe and developing that technology is so that we can test this in much larger patient populations to be really sure that this effect is real, that we can discriminate, and we have to know exactly how well we can do that. So of course, we hope that that works very well, but we need to know for sure, and the data is going to lead the way. So is this something that you could wear outside of the infusion suite? Like, could a patient potentially wear this at home? And then you would have, I mean, you said that this is so data dependent, that would give you a lot more data if you could follow them for not only hours, but days and following those initial few rounds of chemotherapy. So is, is that a, a possibility that you're thinking about? In fact, that's exactly where we want to go. And there's a specific reason for it. Because the imaging technologies we've had to date just broadly, are unable to track patients in real time, right? If you go to the hospital to get a mammogram or an MRI or a CAT scan, you know that's going to be at one point during therapy or for a diagnosis, but those modalities live in the hospital. They don't travel with the patient. 
they're expensive, they require a lot of infrastructure. So we're at a, a point in medicine and, and technology where there are some versions of imaging technologies that could actually travel with the patient, and this is one of them. Um, in one sense, the technology is simple enough that we can, quote unquote, untether it. So it could be battery operated, and it could communicate with a, uh, a computer that can be carried around or left in the home. And we can search for time points that are prognostic, meaning they tell us about whether a patient's responding or not, that we've just been unable to measure in the past. And we're excited about this because some of our studies have shown that time points which we really didn't expect to give us important information did. We, I did a study as a, a postdoctoral fellow back in, at UC Irvine where we hypothesized, but it was a risky hypothesis, that measuring patients every day for their first week of therapy might provide some information that's useful for determining response. And we published the paper back then showing that, wow, 24 hours after the first fusion actually looks like an important time point for maybe understanding mm -hmm. who's responding and who isn't. So there may be other time points related to the schedule of when patients get their drugs um, that are important that we just don't know about. And those may be dependent on the patient, may, de may be dependent on the specific drugs that the patient's getting or the length of their schedule or their dose, um, things like this. So we still have a lot to learn. You know, what, one of the things, all right, so two things I, I really appreciate about what you first said. First is your flexibility. And it sounds like you've kind of started to expect the unexpected in the data, which I think is an admirable trait in any scientist. I, I also love something else we haven't touched on. And I think that for patients, the time between therapies and the time between scans can just be fraught with uncertainty of not knowing what's happening inside your body and how your tumors are responding. And while patients would not necessarily have information any sooner, I love the fact, and I think patients would really appreciate knowing that they are being continuously monitored during these kind of in-between times to know that based on them, based on the drug, based on the dose, based on the time, the duration, that there could be some flexibility and some monitoring of their responsiveness. So I think that um, would bring some really in, incredible peace of mind and also sense of control and contribution to the process by patients who, who are, quite frankly, the, the entire entirety of the focus. Um, so I love that. You know, one of the great things about the American Cancer Society and, and when we work to make proposals to the American Cancer Society, one of the things that they encourage is for us to talk to um, breast cancer survivors, also called patient advocates. And of course, we talk to healthcare providers and patients that are currently being treated uh, for, with neoadjuvant chemotherapy when we take our measurements. And so we hear this directly from people who've gone through the therapy. And uh, it's easy to imagine, right? You're getting this cytotoxic drug, this chemical that is hopefully helping you, but in some cases it's not. And some assurance, even if it is working, um, would really probably offer some peace of mind. So we certainly try to keep that in mind as a, one of our, our major motivating factors. Absolutely, front and center. So I'd really be interested, so all scientists have something that they're super excited about, that when you're in the shower, this is what you're thinking about, the first thing you think about in the morning. So can you give us the, give us the, the kind of inside scoop? What, what, 
particularly exciting piece of your data or research or even just an idea are you excited about right now? Yeah, I've got a few of those, and they change over time as you get excited. <laughs> so I always tell the students, um, when you have new data, send it to me, email it to me, or come to my office, because I'm so excited to see data, even if it doesn't look that good. <laughs> but sometimes it looks really exciting. So I have two things that I'm really excited about right now related to this project. And the first is um, it's a project that's gone on that we've done for a long time, for a decade now. And so it expands my postdoc career and my time as an assistant professor and now as an associate professor here at BU. But what we did is we had the opportunity, as I mentioned earlier, to look really early during therapy with an earlier version of the technology. So we scanned patients as many days as we could during the first week of therapy. And we did this in a way where we collected enough data. This was both in California and here at Boston University, we measured patients. And what we found after looking through the data is that the type of therapy really matters in a way that we didn't expect. So some of the patients we measured were measured with a type of chemotherapy where you're given a big dose every three weeks. And the idea is that big dose targets the tumor, and then you need a period of recovery because that big dose of chemotherapy is kind of rough on the body. And then right. there's this totally different type of therapy that has sometimes the same drugs, sometimes not. But, but the philosophy is different. You give small doses more frequently. So a smaller dose every week or every two weeks. And it turns out the biological um, reactions of the tumor are quite different between these therapies. And what we see in our optical measurements are quite different. So it, it dictates when during therapy we might be able to predict response and what type of optical biomarkers or optical signatures we're looking for. So all this goes back to what we were talking about before in this idea of personalized or precision medicine, and it all matters. The, the patient matters, the types of drugs they're given, even if they're given the same types of drugs, the dose and the schedule that those drugs are given all fit into this big picture of you know, we really need feedback to understand what's going on for probably everyone. So I'm really excited about that. And that's, um, you know, something we're working on. We've talked about it a bit at conferences, but it's not yet published. So here's a, a little bit of a preview. Um, and then, of course, on the technology side, which is the other side of the lab, I'm really excited about the wearable probe. We've just seen some really interesting um, results from the wearable probe and what we call healthy volunteers. So volunteers, we ask to come into the lab so we can test the probe before we actually take it over to the clinic. And one of the things we've been doing with the wearable probe is you could put the probe on and we can use it to measure the tumors, but it helps to have some kind of perturbation. Remember, we're measuring blood and we can measure oxygenated blood and deoxygenated blood. And so one of the things we have our volunteers do is hold their breath for about 20 seconds. And then we can see how the oxygenation of the blood changes in healthy tissue, in the case of the healthy volunteers. But the idea is when you hold your breath and there's a tumor, the oxygenation changes, how quickly the tumor utilizes that oxygen is going to be different. And that's our, our contrast. That's how we can detect the tumor and determine whether it's responding to treatment. But most recently, we've tried just using a blood pressure cuff. This is kind of fun. So a blood pressure cuff, the same cuff you would use to take a blood pressure, and we put that on an arm, on your arm, just like you would when you take measure your blood pressure. And we can see changes in the breast with the probe during that 
cuff experiment. So what we think is happening is we're actually shunting the oxygenated blood that would have gone to your arm to other parts of your body, including the breast. So this looks like a, a really useful perturbation for us going forward to help us understand what we call the hemodynamics of the tumor in the breast. And you could even pie in the sky, think of that as becoming a part of the standard practice when you walked into the infusion room, you put the probe on, you measure your blood pressure, and the probe has been able to uh, detect changes in oxygenation during that normal blood pressure reading, which could be done for lots of reasons. So interesting. All right. Well, of course, the American Cancer Society is a huge fan of all that you and your lab is doing. Um, I, I'd really like to know, are there ways that ACS funding has impacted your career that you could share with us? Oh, for sure. So I can tell you that the American Cancer Society funded the first big grant in my lab, the Research Scholar Grant. So really, the American Cancer Society helped to kick off my entire research program here at BU, so I'm forever grateful to them for that. And that grant, which I got as a, um, an early assistant professor, allowed us to do the initial work in building the wearable probe, as well as some investigations elsewhere in the lab, earlier stages in the preclinical setting, but it really kicked off everything we're doing now. So I would say that it's had a, a quite a large impact in my career, and I'm very thankful. All right, Darren, last question, and we'll let you get back to it because I know you're busy. Many of the individuals who listen to our podcast are either cancer patients or caregivers or survivors or, quite frankly, individuals who just um, want to learn more about cancer. So can you share a specific message, though, to our cancer patient listeners? Yes. So first off, I'd like to thank all the cancer patients that have been involved in the clinical studies we've conducted so far. And related to the message to the listeners, I would encourage cancer patients, if they're willing, to consider taking part in clinical studies and clinical trials, uh, if that's something they're interested in. It can be challenging to recruit patients. We're asking a lot from folks going through treatment for, for cancer. Um, you know, it's a difficult time, but as a, a researcher and a scientist, we actually need your help to do what we can to improve therapy or improve detection of therapy efficacy, like our lab is trying to do. So my message to them is thank you, and, and please consider taking part in clinical trials and studies. Thanks, Darren. I really love that. And I have appreciated that multiple times during this conversation, you've talked about the team approach that it really is, that your research in particular not only involves your team, but a team of health professionals who are working with patients um, to utilize the technology, the patients themselves, healthy volunteers, the ACS as a funder, and I'm, you know, I'm just thrilled we're in it with you and uh, wish you the, the very best of luck in your continued endeavors. Well, thank you so much, Susanna. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you today.